everyone, and welcome to another episode of Captain Hunter's Podcast, a podcast that is dedicated towards bridging the divide between the police and the communities that they serve. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Thank you for the love, for the support, and all that you have been bringing to the show. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. The grow has the show has been growing and going, and I appreciate it. You know, um, thank you so much to you all for sharing, spreading the word, uh, for liking, for the thumbs up. Um, and for the downloads, of course, that you all have been giving. Continue to keep it up as we continue to go on and grow on. Got a lot of great things planned for Captain Hunter's podcast. A lot of great guests coming up. Uh, we're going to talk about a lot of different things. Some of them are going to be controversial. Um, but I think that it's really, really important that we get this information out there so that we can get better as a community and so that we can get better as a police department or in your local police department. If the community gets better, the police get better, then the relationships between those two entities can only improve, can only improve. So I just want to remind everyone that I do have a book, Police Reform, a retired police captain's perspective on the evolution of law enforcement in America and how to improve the criminal justice system. Um, so I'm holding it up for the video there. Um, so remember to pick it up. You can go to lulu.com and pick up a copy from there. I'm still working on it becoming available for ebook. There is a problem with uh, the printers. It's not on my end, it is on their end as they have written to me in an email and told me that myself and numerous other authors are experiencing some type of problem when they try to upload their uh, books to the ebook uh, format. So that is something that they are working on. As soon as it is ready for ebook, I will certainly let you all know. I, I am the type of person that I, I would rather have an ebook copy myself. Uh, so that is uh, yet in the works. In the meantime, get the get the paperback book <laughs> um, so you can help support the podcast and support uh, all that we're trying to do. Uh, just a little reminder, I am available for speaking engagements uh, and uh, and uh, working on life coaching, life skills and uh, supervision courses, uh, management courses, leadership courses, doing all that type of good thing. So. Uh, if you're looking for anyone to help uh, motivate your, your 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 group, your crowd, your business, uh, members of your organization, uh, move them in towards leadership, elevate them in leadership, uh, motivate them their leadership skills. Uh, I'm the man for you to call, uh, so we can do all of that kind of good stuff. So for today's episode. We have a good one for you. We have Dr. Janine Jones from the University of Washington in Seattle. Uh, she has specialized in uh, young, helping young African girls of color or African-American girls of color uh, to uh, build their self-esteem. Uh, she has worked with school resource officers within the Seattle school system. Um, she is someone who's dedicated towards multiculturalism and helping just to build the self-esteem of young girls. Um, and young and young people just in general, right? It's very, very important as we build this community that we have a relationship between the community and the police and we build the self-esteem of people. So many times, uh, and I know this from my own um, uh, de degree in um, psychology, so many times that so many people are suffering and acting out because their self-esteem is low, right? They, they act out in a class because they don't understand the material, they don't understand the work, so therefore they try to distract and try to uh, uh, and try to act out because they are not understanding the work. But so we're trying to get them. We're trying to build their self-esteem so they understand the work, so they understand themselves, uh, understand that, that they have visions, goals, purpose. Give them visions, goals, purpose, drive, 
motivation, all that kind of good stuff. And therefore, they will become less of a distraction, less of a problem for the educators to actually to add <laughs> to actually educate them uh, and, and drive them towards their goals. So that's what Miss Janine Jones is all about. So we're going to get right into the episode. Here is the episode with Dr. Janine Jones. Please make sure that you rate, subscribe and share these episodes. Uh, remember, you can support the podcast through PayPal, Cash App and Venmo. Cash App and Venmo are CPTL Hunter. PayPal is C-A-P-T-H-U-N-T-E-R. Uh, Patreon page. A lot of other things coming up. Um, very, very shortly, I will make those announcements as well as the time comes. But in the meantime, here is the interview that we did on a Facebook Live with Dr. Janine Jones. Um, so I started the show, so we're we're live right now. So uh, people will hopefully trickle in. And I don't want to waste your time. So I want to say thank you to my special guest for today, Miss. Uh, Janine Jones, PhD, doctor. What do you, what do you, what do you, how do you refer to yourself as? Doctor, oh, PhD. Well, what at, you... <laughs> at my work, they say Doctor Jones at work. But... Okay, okay, yeah. okay. All right, all right. So thank you so much for for coming on the show. I really, really appreciate it. So if you would just take a moment there, just kind of explain to us who you are and all that kind of good stuff. Okay, okay. Well, I, I'm a professor of school psychology at the University of Washington, and I've been there 15 years. And part of my work is focusing on research related to black youth, in particular black girls. And um, I've you know, I've trained people to work as professionals, mental health professionals in schools, and um, have done some partnership work with um, school resource officers at times, and really understanding how to get to know and understand the kids that are in the schools that we're in. So I'm in Seattle, Washington. That's where University of Washington is. And so it's an urban community, and we have a school district. Seattle Public Schools is um, rather large, you know, um, 50,000 kids. So, yeah. Mm. Yeah, my son was out in Tacoma, uh, okay. so I miss him being out there. He took me to uh, the Seattle Seahawks games and stuff like that. So, oh, I yeah. yeah, I miss him being out there. I'm like, man, you, you need you need to go back to Seattle, brother. <laughs> yeah, you get to go to a Seahawks game. That's like a highlight of being in town. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we went to the to the fish market after that. That's right up the Pike road Lake? there. Yeah, 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 uh -huh. yeah. So I had a good time out there. Um, uh, and also, Seattle is much—it's much different than going to a game around here, whether it's a Yankees game or or a football game, the, the Giants, whatever, uh, because it was much less crowded. I noticed, you know, I mean, we were yeah. able to drive—we drove in, and I mean, we parked a little bit of ways, but it was like you know, a ten-minute walk, and then we walked in. And, I mean, you go to New York, it's—it's it's wall to wall as soon as, as soon as you hit the border, you know. So right. I was like, wow, man. you know. Uh, so so I I enjoyed I enjoyed my time out there. Uh, it yeah. rained most of the days I was out there, but. Oh, but that's well. all. But that's all good. <laughs> I guess that's. I guess that's part for the course for Seattle, right? Right. <laughs> so, what made you decide to get in this this line of work, uh, dealing with women or or young girls and all that? What? How'd yeah. you get into that? Well, you know, uh, school psychology, I always knew I wanted to be a psychologist. I kind of started my training in um, probably 
high school actually because I took classes in psychology and I had some people around me like adults that were in uh, my life that were really encouraging and um, my father in particular happens to be someone that tries to find the best in everybody and and kind of highlight that and bring that in and um, and so I just try to always be a person that was available to other people and support other people. And I looked for careers that would allow for that. And so when I went to undergrad, I did um, a degree in psychology, which doesn't get you anywhere. When you want to be a psychologist, you've got to go to grad school. And so then I did a master's degree at University of Southern California in marriage, family and child counseling. And that got me in working directly with kids and not necessarily in schools. And then um, I was working kind of in community mental health for a time. And then um, I started learning, well, my goodness, the best place to really be able to support kids where you don't require their parents to have to bring them to a special appointment um, outside of schools is at school. And so I ended up going back and doing a doctoral degree in school psychology at the University of Texas at Austin. And that really shaped the direction that I could go and um, helped me recognize the influence that you can have on children and families by meeting them where they are, not just in community mental health settings, but actually to be in the school setting where they spend a huge amount of their time and um, be able to make a difference where they're experiencing a lot of their stresses too. Yeah, I was just talking to a friend of mine today uh, who was talking about, we were talking about uh, uh, you know, uh, a, a bachelor's degree in psychology is pretty much useless. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so we both have we both have bachelor's degrees in psychology. So, so yeah. we're like, we, we got to go far farther than this, you know. Yeah. Um, so, so I can I can certainly appreciate that. Um, and nobody tells you that, of course. And nobody tells you that. <laughs> yes, yes. And I certainly did not hear that until I until I finished the degree and I started looking around. It's like, oh, you know, you really need a master's degree to do anything. You do. And then and then you get the master's degree. And then they're like, well, you really kind of need a PhD to do something yeah. with psychology. That's <laughs> what I want to do. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's kind of a you know, kind of a bait and switch type of thing for the, anyone that. who's out there, anyone <laughs> out there who's trying to uh, think about a degree in psychology. Eh, you've got another five or six years to go before you could <laughs> at <laughs> school. At least, at least, yeah, yeah, with all the clinicals and stuff, you know, mm -hmm. you know, seven, eight probably. Yeah. Um so so did you always want to work with uh, kids who are, um, I guess, challenged? Uh, is it a socioeconomic thing or did you just kind of focus on kids? How did you, what would yeah. you be your well, so I'm, I'm kind of a kid at heart, so I love playing and and just kind of meeting people at their level. And um, and so I, I knew that I wanted to work with kids because I feel like kids have so little control over their environments and they didn't have voice. And so there was something that I kind of saw pretty quickly is one that I could find a way to connect with kids and be their voice with their parents and help them understand and um, like what they're experiencing. And so uh, as I was kind of going through my training, I was looking to see who has the best needs or the most needs and needed um, support. And when I was uh, working at, um, uh, uh, I was at USC and I was working in Compton, California. And the work that I was doing was groups with kids uh, that were in school and it was all African-American kids. And I was seeing that they were experiencing um, kind of like these startle responses to loud noises and things like that. And, I, and the, you know, the, we were in a group and 
there was a loud noise outside and everybody hit the ground except me. And I was trying to understand, you know, what, and then they just got up and they just kept going and moved along. And so I was trying to get an understanding of where, what that was. And so I started studying post-traumatic stress disorder. And then I started seeing, well, wait, these kids were super resilient. Like given the circumstances that they were experiencing, there was a lot of chronic community violence at that time. And um, what I what I started studying the literature and everything that I could find or see about African-American kids was about them being the perpetrators of the violence and not being resilient to or having experiences with violence. And, and I was like, well, this isn't, um, there's nobody contributing to that body of literature. So that's where my research body of literature started, was really to try and find ways for other people to see what are the strengths of African-American youth and how are they resilient to even the most awful of circumstances that we could see. And But these kids were amazing. And so that, that kind of shaped the direction that I went. And then um, over the years, then I was really focusing on Black girls and, um, and trying to help understand why there were these dynamics. We're seeing these incredible dynamics of girls, black girls being suspended six times more than white girls in school and um, watching expulsion rates, you know, be really high and, and not have any kind of understanding of, of why that is. And so that was the reason why I wanted to start um, really focusing my research on what are the, the positives so that we could help schools understand how to reach them and have them engaged in school so that they're not the, the victims of this chronic um, suspension and, and push out of schools. You've probably seen that term, uh, um, the practices of pushing out black youth from schools. Yeah, what well, could you could you relate that for the audience? Could you define that for the audience? Yeah, so if you've heard the term "school to prison pipeline," that is um, this this ongoing pattern where youth start getting policed while they're in um, elementary, preschool, middle school, early early age, and and when I say policed, it's really meaning the behaviors are um, criminalized. So we've got like five-year-olds five in kindergarten that are suspended and um, labeled as violent kids or violent youth. And, and that when those words are kind of spoken into our kids, they kind of become what we are speaking into them. And so over time, that just kind of chips away at who they are. And, and then they start getting this sense of helplessness that no matter what I do, even if I try to have the make the right decision or make the right call in a situation, it seems like a, it's always the wrong call. And so I hope what you're hearing is not uh, a problem with the kids. It's actually a, the adults in their lives that are interpreting behaviors differently, especially in a racially diverse environment where um, black youth are perceived as doing something much worse and have much worse consequences for the same behaviors that other youth um, do. And so I just, for me, I, did, I didn't wanna be the researcher that was feeding into that nonsense and continuing to describe these, these negative patterns and outcomes. What I wanted to be was the researcher that showed the resilience and, and the abilities for kids to achieve beyond expectations and to be the one to teach people how to see that in kids and point out the beauty in what they're bringing to the classroom and the uniqueness to that. And so I, I 
I, I guess I, I kind of see myself as a positivist kind of a researcher, but school to prison pipeline, sorry, going backwards <laughs> to a long story. The school to prison pipeline is like the terminology that people hear, but there, um, the Schott Foundation has done some um, research, S-C-H-O-T-T -T Foundation has done some research and they describe push out practices, which are these practices that have black girls in particular leaving school, either dropping out or being pushed into the criminal system or um, um, early pregnancy, drug use, like these these things but um, that are negative outcomes, but they are, are perpetrated by the practices that we do in school when we're responding to behaviors that we perceive to be not positive, I'll say. Yeah, so there's a lot to, to, to unpack there. And I um, am familiar with a lot of those terms. And, but actually, I never heard a push out. I got to be honest about that. Okay. Um, yeah. So a lot of stuff that you that you talked about, uh, I, I took a look at when I was going for my for my degree and particularly the P PTSD. Right. With yeah. So many so many children, particularly in Chicago, Detroit, Baltimore, mm -hmm. who are suffering from, you know, it's like living in a war zone. So, yeah. Yeah. So I want to talk about your, your positivity and um, the resilience that you talked about. I just watched mm -hmm. I just right before you right before you caught me watching YouTube. I was watching <laughs> just for the audience out there, right? So the screen, the screen is on, the camera's on, but on the other side of the screen, I'm watching YouTube. I'm watching uh, the uh, uh, Daniel Cameron. I think his name is the the yeah. prosecutor from uh, from uh, Louisville, Kentucky. I was watching his speech about why he didn't decide to prosecute, and she's like in the background, "Hey, I, hey, I'm here," and I couldn't see her. So. <laughs> So I was watching YouTube. I was watching YouTube at the time, but before I was watching YouTube, I was actually watching your video about resilience. It's on your uh -huh. on your website, um, so you can just talk to us just a little bit about uh, resilience and and the other side of that, right? We see the negative, the push out, and all that kind of stuff. But just talk about the resilience, if you will. Yeah, sure. I, I um, in the video that you watched, if, if you folks want to watch it, um, the title of the video is Biology of Resilience. And I like to use metaphors for people to kind of connect with the ideas that I'm sharing. And so in that video, um, I use the metaphor of a cell and the nucleus of a cell and the cytoplasm, which is the liquid that um, protects the nucleus in a cell. And what I, I'm calling the nucleus is resilience. And I'm saying that that is something that is already existing when we're born. It's something that continue to be protected and cultivated over time. And then the inside the cytoplasm, there are lots of things for black youth that kind of fit in with the um, protecting the nucleus or protecting their um, resilience. And so um, I, for my dissertation study a long, long, long ago, Huh? It wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't that long ago. <laughs> I did a, a study of, of um, youth in Houston, Texas, in the third and the fifth ward of Houston, which are two areas that had um, a history of, of chronic violence and and significant poverty. And what I wanted to do was try to understand what is it that was keeping them protected from PTSD because they were experiencing violence like many people have never seen. And so I, I decided that I wanted to explore cultural variables that I believe I was raised with and, and other people in the black community have been raised with. And so I picked three things. I looked at um, formal kinship, which is family, 
support, um, informal kinship, which that's those family members that we refer to as as family, but they're actually not blood related. So you know, play <laughs> mama, play cousins, auntie, you know, that, grandma. Yeah, that, that, that's NIM. That's that's the NIM, right? That's Mama NIM. That's NIM. Yes. So the NIM, they, uh, <laughs> I was studying those without the proper terminology at the time. And, and I wanted to see that those two as well as spirituality. And I wanted to see combining those things as well as looking them individually. Was it enough to protect kids from what, what I was looking at the time was complex PTSD, which is post-traumatic stress disorder with an overlay of depression and it's it's one that is kind of linked to chronic community violence. So what I found in that study was that kids that had um, formal kinship it by themselves was not enough to protect them from post-traumatic stress disorder. Informal kinship, the NEMS, not enough. Spirituality was. So if they relied on faith and they relied on a, 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 a being or power outside of themselves, that that was enough, very, not huge significance, but just you know, right in the significant range. But what was even more powerful was the kids that had all three, and these were kids from like fifth grade to eighth grade age, um, 71 of them. They, uh, the kids that had the most of all of those, so basically the higher number of all of those variables combined had the, the most protection from post-traumatic stress disorder. So that was really helpful because those I considered those cultural variables and at the same time, they aren't things that are often studied. So I had to create measures to be able to assess these things in my interviews. I did interviews with all the, the interviews and service with all the families. And so, um, if I go back to the biology of resilience metaphor, formal kinship and informal kinship and spirituality are among those things that kind of protect the resilience of, of black youth is the way that I see it, that they're kind of fitting in that the more you have of these things, they retain who you are and your identity and your way of, um, of understanding the world. Whereas when we're dealing with environments that are inherently racist, then it breaks down things and it breaks down our ability to, to respect and, and see ourselves and feel connected to others and, um, and part of um, the black community collectivism or being connected to others or doing things um, on behalf of your community or the, you know, we've heard of that sense of we, like I, I, it's not me that did it, it was us, you know, together, like that, that togetherness is a part of the culture. And when those things are existing and continuing to be maintained in their environments, they're much more healthy and able to handle the most difficult things that come their way. So that, that's what that, you know, that model is about is like, how do we cultivate and continue to support all of those things that are inherently part of the culture and need to be respected as valuable because we go into educational systems, that's not exactly what they're paying attention to. Those are extra. Those aren't, those aren't the main things that are defining achievement and success in the classroom. Yeah, listen, I got to say that that's really um, surprising to me when you talk about the formal and informal did not work as well as far as insulation. And that's, I would assume that that's just insulation from the PTSD, right? Does it mm -hmm. right. probably have a discussion about other things that is, right. does it isolate you from other things? Okay. 
I got you. Um, but spirituality does. That's that's really important. I guess that would make sense because it's really about the mind, right? I mean, so okay. if you really can can internalize hope and dreams and and, and whatever, and someone's looking out for you, then uh, whatever people envision by spirituality, I can certainly see that that means that would mean a lot. Um, so I want to get to some people's comments here. A lot of people said hello, so I want to say hello to everyone. Uh, Chris and uh, Marlene and uh, Lauren and Zakia and Trey and uh, Ed and uh, Kalisha and uh, whoever else is here. So thank you so much for, for tuning in. Really appreciate mm -hmm. it. If you guys have any questions or comments, make sure that you shoot them. Uh, I do want to get to a comment here. Uh, one is by Zakia. When you were talking about um, black girls in school being pushed out and everything, she wrote, uh, so true, I went to school with not only metal detectors, but security. Let me put it on the screen here. So true. I never. I went to school with not only metal detectors, but security officers uh, treated us like criminals instead of students. Um, and uh, uh, Trey Ellen, uh, you know, before that said absolutely. So I wanted to talk just a little bit about that. I did want to have you back on. Uh, I wanted to be a two-parter because I wanted to talk about your work with uh, um, uh, SROs. Mm -hmm. um, so, but this kind of would tie into that, but we'll address it because he's talked about it here. So just talk about um, the way that some students are treated with, particularly within inner city environments. If you could talk about that just a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Zakia, the, the, the setting, like, like describing the metal detectors and, and walking into a place like that, like it, it, you would think that it's supposed to make you feel safe, but then, I, I think about the feeling that I have when like I see a police officer behind me and the siren going and I'm like, okay, what am I doing? Did I, did I? And that angst that you feel, kids feel that going through medical med, metal detectors, you know, going into school and that's supposed to be the environment where um, they're going in to learn and, and it kind of sets the tone. And I get why we have them, but at the same time, we also need to know that our um, emotions are attached to very physical things like that. And the practices that we have when, you know, you're sitting in a room and, you know, half, half brown kids and half white kids and you do the same, the white kid does something and the brown kid does the same behavior, the white kid, everybody laughs, the brown kid gets kicked out of the room. Just even that is is a treatment that says that you don't you aren't valued or you're you know just really not necessary in this room and those that kind of takes a toll on kids you know that it be, it becomes a process where you have to look at yourself and you think well do they really not want me here and maybe i am that kid that just doesn't belong so so kind of thinking about when the environment is structured where school safety is being prioritized, what about the emotional safety of kids? We have to have plans, very clear plans on how to build and protect the emotional safety and also pay attention to when there's differential treatment and how and why there's differential treatment because I'm all about fairness. I, I think it's really critical to make sure that adults are held accountable when they are um, doing disproportionate practices. I mean, um, disproportionality is a term we use in school psychology a lot that is um, referred to when you um, kids, a population of people are overrepresented in a setting that they shouldn't. And so 
how many people on this call have gone by a behavior classroom and noticed that it's all brown boys in there. Um, whereas everybody has some not so good behaviors, but, but it is interpreted as disability and then they get funneled into that and it is hard to get out. It's really, uh, once a kid gets tracked into that system, it, it takes a whole lot to pull them from it and it takes advocates and it takes the adults to see a different person um, from that. And it's, it's, it's heartbreaking, you know, when um, part of my, you know, I train school psychologists, school psychologists are the ones that do the evaluations to um, make decisions about placement in classrooms. And my mission for the past 15 years has been to make sure that none of my students, white, black, Asian, none of them are perpetuating the cycles of putting kids or placing kids in um, behavior classrooms when it is just not warranted. So um, I wanted to kind of ask a little bit about the prevalence of this, right? I've been reading about this. Is there really a disparity between uh, children acting up in class and um, black boys being put into, I've, I've heard it. Uh, I've never, I, 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 I have never read it. It wasn't, you know, I didn't. So can you talk a little bit about that? Is there a disparity? Are people not knowing that they're really doing this, that you're, you know, Johnny acts up and then <laughs> Rakim acts up <laughs> and then they don't re realize that, that they're, that they're doing that. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. is that. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's kind of disgusting because it, in the past, mm, maybe eight years, 10 years, we just started um, requiring, we, not me, the uh, Office of Civil Rights, <laughs> it's a federal institution, um, just started requiring districts to disaggregate their data. So discipline data before was not disaggregated by race, or by gender. It was just, they were just reported on, at a school and everybody was clustered together and it was impossible to, to notice or recognize disproportionality. What has happened over the um, past 10 years or so is we've been able, we call it, the terminology is called disproportionate discipline and that's where disproportionality, that term comes from. Um, what has happened was now that um, districts are forced to disaggregate their data by race, it, it highlights all of these disparities like it is so obvious and so that's how you start getting the slaps on the wrist for districts where you have to do things differently you have to create new policies that um if you've got policies that are like um what's the term when it's uh you get three strikes like you know yeah like stuff like that when they have have terms like that or they they have these rules that are really rigid that they don't necessarily adhere to for all youth like that's the, those are practices that actually have to be dismantled. But it is it, it is a huge body of literature that you will see, and it's the patterns are undeniable. And I would assume that in all this, these these are kids sitting in the same class doing the same thing. Absolutely. At, at two fifteen, not two fifteen, they're going home at eleven fifteen. Uh, Johnny threw a paper airplane. At two sixteen, Raheem threw a paper airplane, but he got sent to the office. That that type that type of thing. That's okay. right. That's right. Yeah. And and on top of that, I mean, so that that might be like a little, you know, a little bit of a, um, a, a under 
example because some sometimes they what we've learned is it's called subjective discipline it's the ones where they can use terms like disrespect you know uh, they treated me with disrespect well then uh, you've probably seen on youtube videos of like um somebody um, take getting violent with a kid or a black girl in particular putting their hands on them after they used their mouth or they had too much attitude or whatever that's what you'll hear about girls because they girls are much more likely to to do those kinds of behaviors that they are interpreting and criminalizing too mm. Yes. So speaking of girls here, so uh, let's see. Uh, Zakia says, oh, so true. I went to school not only with metal detectors, but security officers. Treat oh, we, I read that one. Uh, yes, this, it's the same process if you go into a prison to visit someone. She talked about the bars uh, and yeah. the, the feeling, uh, the feelings that people have, you know, when the cops are behind them or going through that. I did go visit someone in prison one time. It was not a pleasant feeling when the doors start mm -hmm. shutting behind you. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, that's part of the reason why I completed my diploma online. I'm assuming, Zakia, that you uh, finished, I, I guess, your high school diploma because you didn't have a good experience in school. I'm assuming that's what you mean. I'm sorry. And, and so uh, the greatest daughter in the world says uh, labeling young black girls with attitude problems. Um, mm -hmm. So so this is part of what you talked about here. Yeah. Is, is, uh, so can you get into that a little bit? We talked about the boys, uh, talk about the girls and their attitude and their, their snapping their, their fingers and rolling their necks and stuff. Right, right. And, <laughs> and so part of the thing is, is like the a teacher, particularly a white teacher might do, say something like, well, they, they were disrespectful. Well, that falls into that subjective discipline because, you know, I got, I got a teenager myself and she rolls her eyes and I'm like, <laughs> and it stops. <laughs> I just get the look. But for, if you're not from the culture, you may not understand that that is, yeah, that was irritating, but is it really worth putting somebody out of the classroom just because you felt uncomfortable about it? So they can write, they can write a referral. Well, um, in my work in middle schools, there was, there was some habits that we were trying to break of um, teachers, but we had to really look at the data to make decisions about, okay, who do we need to be doing, you know, kind of professional development, you know, workshops to help them kind of understand these are these are manifestations of trauma and you don't want to treat respond to trauma in the same way you would respond to violent behavior, you know, that kind of thing. And what we found was there were often what we refer to, this sounds terrible, but high flyers, we would refer to those teachers as high flyers because it was typically one or two classrooms that kept referring kids for behavior problems. And it wasn't the classroom, the constellation of the classroom, it wasn't necessarily the kids, it was that teacher's threshold for behavior was much lower than for others. And when we, um, we kind of gave some awareness around, you know, if a kid says this, this might be what they're signaling, I need your attention, or I need you to notice that I'm raising my hand because I'm really excited about this topic that we're working on, where it would be interpreted as disruptive to the classroom be kind of behaviors. And so we had to, you know, in trying to educate some people, it would work, some people it, it wouldn't, and they would just continue. And then what it took was a team of um, um, discipline staff so usually the assistant principal and maybe a school psychologist and this would be a way to retain them in the classroom rather than sending them to the office because every minute that they're out of the classroom 
is another um, day that they're losing of education. Yeah, are you still there? Did you freeze? I think she froze a little bit, or is that me? Can you guys still hear me? I don't know if you can hear me. Yeah, I can hear you. I, okay. okay, you froze. Okay, you froze up for a little for a little okay. bit there. Sorry. Everybody. Uh, <laughs> uh, no problem. No problem. Um, so there's there's so much here that, that that you keep mentioning. I keep trying to make some notes here. So I'm you keep this is sec. No, no, it's all it's okay. all good. Uh, uh, if I wasn't making notes, that'd be a problem. I'd be sitting here. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Say something interesting. Um, so um, uh, you talked about culture, and it's the second time you, you brought that up. And there's a there's a YouTube video by I don't know if you heard of her, Dr. Barbara Sizemore. Um, she was a yeah. she was a, a an educator, I think, in Chicago or Pennsylvania or so, somewhere somewhere in the Midwest there. And uh, she she there's a there's a YouTube talk that she does, and I I say it because I want people to to go out and listen to to this to this YouTube uh, video. It's a, I, I think it goes I think the name of the title is uh, Black People Just Don't Get It. Huh. Um, yeah, it's really really good. She she was an educator, and so okay. what she talks about is, and one of the things that that she talks about that's in there is really profound to me. Is she says that black people have not saved their culture, so their culture cannot save them. Mm. So we see all these kids who are messing up, cussing out their teachers, doing all this crazy stuff, um, or even if they're not doing those to that particular level, if they are perceived to doing it. Right, it's the culture uh, that that is not saving them from from this type of thing. You talk about the look that you give to your to your kid, mm -hmm. uh, so not to your kid, to your to your child. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I assume you don't have any goats. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> um, so does that does having a, a a black teacher, male or female? I know that we need more black male teachers. Does that help? Does that does that help them to identify with the culture? Is, mm -hmm. is, is my question. I, I actually believe it does. Um, so I, I would disagree with the the that we're not saving our culture. What I'm noticing is that you take a, a child from in the school setting and then you put them in their home context where you have their parent around, their behavior does not look the same at all. And, and so what I think is happening is our school setting doesn't align with the culture and the behaviors of the culture. When schools are deliberate about engaging families and having families feel welcome at school and part of the process, the kids' behaviors, children's behaviors, now I will never say kid again after you said that, that was hilarious. But then, <laughs> I try. I'm here all week, everyone. I'm here all week. <laughs> but but the, the, the children's behaviors are more aligned when they know it's possible their mom is going to show up in the building or that somebody knows them. I, you know, I, I think about how many times, like my daughter's in high school and they, their school counselor's good about reaching out to families, but they really are trying to give agency to the youth so they don't really create a context for family to do be a part of it, except for it back to school night and that kind of stuff. Well, if the if the ex if they knew what the expectations were at home, they're more likely to have the same expectation in the classroom. But you got to align it and have a conversation around it. So elementary schools, where I see them doing home visits and really connecting with families, you don't see it in the same way. They, no, they wouldn't say that. They wouldn't say that we're not maintaining the culture, we're not retaining it, we're 
maintaining it at home, but how do you translate it to the school context? The school has to be open and ready to embrace it and not just have a bring your favorite dish from your culture night. Or, you know, I mean, if that's the extent <laughs> of what we do, Right, right, right. So it's not really creating the place for us to align our cultural. Well, culture. I think that I think that that's I think that that's really key. I mean, is bringing is allowing that type of culture, discipline, whatever uh, reinforcement in a school setting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I, I definitely I definitely agree. Uh, so a couple more um, comments here. Uh, Lavonda Sweeney, who was on the podcast before, did a great job for us. You're coming back on, Lavonda. I don't care what you say. If I have to go to your house and get you back on, yeah. <laughs> so uh, some of the some of the white, usually female teachers in my high school would intentionally uh, antagonistic or be antagonistic towards the black boys in order to get them to react. Then they would, then when they did react, the boys were written up and sent to the principal's office. It used to infuriate me. Yeah. Yeah. You see it. Um, let's see. She intimidly, I guess it was a typo. And Zakia says, I'm not going to poach some of your guests because she comes to my show and steals my guests. Here. <laughs> so. <laughs> you had them first, so <laughs> yeah, yeah. I won't even give me credit. Uh, like uh, you know, I heard of, I heard it first on Captain Hunter's podcast. You could at least do that, Zakia. Um, so, so I want to talk about um, the chronic. It's something a term you mentioned before: chronic, uh, chronic community violence. Mm -hmm. Very, very important. And then, and then we'll get into to little girls feeling bad about themselves. Yeah, I promise. <laughs> um, so. What, what role does that play in the girls feeling bad about themselves, boys feeling bad about themselves, the problems in school, the community violence, right? The environment that they're, that they're immersed in. How, what role does that play in, yeah. in their whole psyche and all that? Yeah, a lot. I mean, in, well, it, de it depends on how their protective mechanisms are um, helping them distance from it. So if when we have kids that are exposed to chronic community violence, like what I was describing in Compton, I would not say that those children were um, depressed and significantly anxious. They had school, a school setting where they knew they were loved. They were going into an environment that fed them all three meals. This is, and this was in the nineties, early nineties, they fed them all three meals. They took care of their their families too. So their families were able to come up to school and get meals. They would help them get vouchers to get clothes because, and they did it all uniform school so that there wasn't disparities on what kids had access to. So there was so much that, that protected them because the community was wrapped around them, even though there was still gang violence that was occurring, there was a lot that was there to protect them. And so now, you know, I'm, I'm in Seattle, and so there's not, you don't see that level of violence, but I know that, that Chicago, it's still continues in the same way that what, what I was seeing back in the early 90s in um, Compton. And so, it's there are if if we don't lean into the helplessness associated with up oh, we can't change their environment that's what they're in because that's what a lot of, of school personnel will do is they'll say well we can't really do anything about that so we can just take care of them while they're here at school if you don't think outside the box and think about get creating a place that people want to come to to be um, connected and safe and know that they're cared about 
it's it's not going to change things over time. Very good. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about um, uh, you know young girls growing up feeling good about themselves, feeling bad about themselves. Mm -hmm. So that how I came to, to to be recognized with your work is uh, so I was listening to this. And I really don't try to get into right wing, left wing kind of stuff. I try to just call it down the middle. Mm -hmm. And so, but I was listening to this uh, guy. He's a black, really black conservative and always talking about, you know, whatever they talk about. I really shouldn't be so dismissive, but but he was talking about whatever he's talking about. And mm -hmm. so he said that uh, black, you know, black girls were, were feeling good about themselves. And that just like didn't resonate well with me. So I started reading up on, on different things amongst the other things that he said. And so what he, what, Part of what he said was true. He said, in comparison to to black girls growing up, uh, in comparison to white girls, right, four out of ten black black girls will feel good about themselves, whereas for white girls, it's three three out of ten. I mean, these are some of the statistics that I that I pulled up. I mean, I didn't print them out or anything. So, um, so I thought he was being a little bit disingenuous and misleading because he was saying that black girls feel good about themselves. Well, four out of ten is not is not a good number. Three out of ten for white girls is not a good number either, right? Yeah. So this leads to girls doing all kind of stupid stuff, going into stripping, porn, doing mm -hmm. drugs, all, all you know, all the all the social evils we're trying to keep them away from, you know. And so that's why I want. That's why I started reading around and came across your work where you're doing these that type of things to make girls uh, feel good about themselves. So can you talk a little bit about the program uh, that you did uh, or the study that you did at a school? after school mm -hmm. program and all that kind of stuff. We can talk about yeah, that. yeah, no, I appreciate you kind of drawing the the connections to feeling good about self and then not feeling good about self and how it leads to um, kind of hypersexual behaviors and things like that where you're trying to fulfill that empty, you know, need inside. Um, where a lot of that, now gr granted, you know, middle school girls are mean they're just mean to everybody, right? They're mean to each other. Um, they're also trying to find themselves and the ones that are the most capable of building their own um, identity and a positive self-esteem are the ones that have things spoken into them. They are encouraged and they are, people notice, so it's adults and then peers that notice these positive things. So you can think about like lots of, um, uh, middle school girls where if they've been told that they're pretty or that they're attractive, that that's, they think that's all they have. And so they kind of capitalize on that and kind of become more hypersexual. And that's not what we want them to be. We, we've got plenty of time for that in your adult life. So let's, let's focus on what you have to offer to the world. So um, my, my study was really trying to think about what if school programming allowed for girls to look at their culture and recognize the parts of their culture that make them beautiful and the parts that are not um, hmm, promoted in school or enriched or um, you know, um, kind of cultivated in them. And so I had found this curriculum by Faye Belgrave called Sisters of Nia and how I found it, my daughter's name is Nia, so I was totally biased already when I saw it. But then, um, it basically is this series of like um, group interventions that you can do. And so in Egypt, and you can find it on Amazon if you want to take a look at it. Um, and but there there are sessions that every single session is focused on. It's kind of starts with an African proverb. The whole thing is built around the days of Kwanzaa and the principles associated 
associated with each of the seven days. And so you're teaching Swahili terminology as part of this and making it an in-group, kind of making a special in-group of people that they have something in common that other people don't have. And so we were at a middle school down in Federal Way, Washington, and um, that we had uh, two groups running and one one group was doing the Sisters of Nia curriculum and the other was doing kind of a standard um, you know, mind up is another uh, curriculum that we do that's a social emotional learning curriculum where you kind of look at um, how your brain works and emotions attached to that and all that. And so what we wanted to do is with the two groups, have them do um, each complete their series in those curricula and then swap and wanted to look and see how did they feel about themselves during the group and then how long did it um, to maintain after and did the order in which you were presented with the material, did it change things for you as well? And so what we we did, I mean, it was it was pretty fun because this was right after school and we fed the girls and, and um, so I ran the Sisters of Nia group and then I had some of my graduate students running the business as usual because I knew I wasn't, I was gonna be filtering culture into everything. So I couldn't do that other group. And what I could see were bonds between these young girls um, very quickly um, growing. And yeah, there was already mean girl dynamics. There was issues where they were like, I can't be in a group with her because, you know, they like soon as they started. But then when we started coalescing around the material, then all of those things didn't matter anymore. And then it got to the point where we were in running the group or that my team was there and we're waiting for the girls and one would come and then she would be like, oh, wait, such and such. I saw her going for the bus. Let me go grab her because they would forget. And so they run into pull each other in and and the, the attendance. What we found was the greatest when they were in the Sisters of Nia group. And, and when they did the other group, we had more absences. We had more um, um, kind of like, oh, I came for the snack. Oh, I forgot I have track. So I've got to go to track practice. <laughs> so we could see that there was something really tying in to bringing them there and together. But one of the, the um, expected outcomes, but we weren't exactly sure that we were going to find it, was how much did they appear to be engaged in the classroom by their teachers? I didn't meet a single one of their teachers. We just did a three short questionnaire where one of my team members brought them the questionnaire and it was asking about the level of preparedness for the girls, um, for the kids, that were, the ones that were participating. Um, how, it, mood, do you see any differences in their mood? And um, I forgot what the word, oh, turning their work in, completing, not just being engaged, but also completing their work. And to a T, when they were in the Sisters of Nia group, all of those um, ratings were higher. And the ones who started in Sisters of Nia and then moved to the other group, there we could still see it was maintained, but it's the same level of engagement was maintained, but it started to degrade by the end, which told me that it's very important for these, all of these parts of their identity to be cultivated ongoing. And they, um, you know, we did, we did things like looking at history. We started with an African proverb. We looked at history. We um, did games that kind of focused on um, how they, there's an activity called mirror mirror, where you're basically looking at positive mentors that you can pay attention to when you hear the negative or hear the opposite. 
we focused on media and what you see in the media, what is beauty? Well, everything in the media then, if you had natural hair, that's not seen as beautiful. If you had darker skin, that wasn't seen as beautiful. And so part of our work in the group was countering those messages. And um, now luckily we have a natural hair movement. So it's much easier for girls to feel like they're beautiful and that they fit in into context when they're not having to explain away or, you know, tell people that you can't touch my hair and no, you know, all of that, as you, as you know from your daughter, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so um, a couple of things I want to talk about here is I, I put the audio version up that's scrolling across uh, because I've done episodes on uh, uh, black girls' hair. I've done episodes on um, skin, people who are lightening their skin and trying to be brighter and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so this, this, this topic is really, really important to me because I believe that we ought to believe in ourselves. And I say that as, as black people, if you're, if you're white with red hair and you got, you ought to believe and love who you are, right? And so I think that a lot of times um, we have been taught not to love ourselves. And I just saw a a um, a news anchor somewhere, I think in the Atlanta area, who now has keeping her hair short. Um, she there was one story where I read where uh, a news anchor was getting flack from the from the from the, the people. They were writing in saying, "Make this girl grow her hair or whatever, right? And then she did, I don't know if it's the same person, but I just saw one the other day where another lady has gone short hair uh, and just loving her own natural hair and being comfortable in the skin that she's in. I think that that's so important to love who and what we are at all times. And so to your point about, um, you know, these uh, uh, these terroristic uh, middle school girls, I can remember I took my daughter to the doctor for a yearly checkup or whatever. I think she was in sixth, sixth, sixth or seventh grade. And uh, the doctor started telling me, listen, you know, you're going to start having issues and problems. I'm like, why are you saying this? Why are you saying this? The next day, <laughs> the school is calling me up because my daughter was in trouble. I'm like, you cursed me, you, you stupid doctor. That <laughs> <laughs> so was really, so yeah, they, they can they can certainly, certainly be be a terror. Uh, so I want to want to encourage the audience there to go to, make sure you check out the audio versions of Captain Hunter's podcast. I did episodes, great episodes. Uh, about uh, black women's hair, um, and on once, once again about skin bleaching, skin lightening, which is not just a, a black problem, right? There are many Asian groups, uh, right. uh, Native American groups, uh, persons who are doing this type of thing. Uh, so it's not, and uh, so it's not just uh, that. So there's a couple of comments here, and I've talked to Chris about this, but he keeps doing it, right? He keeps trying to show that he's smarter than the host. Uh, doc, does Dr. Jones employ or recommend EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing in treating PTSD or other mental health maladies? Look at this. Look at this. I got to go look half of those words up, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, well, Christopher! I, I appreciate your question. I, I actually, when I was working at an agency in um, Los Angeles, there was a group that was within the clinic that did EMDR for PTSD, and they—I don't—I never was trained in it, so I don't really know kind of all the mechanisms associated with it. It does seem to have kind of an um, like a link to like hypnosis, self-hypnosis as a way of helping um, reduce the impacts of um, severe anxiety disorders. And so I can't really say in my own experience what it ha has been like. However, um, there was a phase in my life where I was working um, in Austin and I worked for a program called the Family Violence Protection Team 
and Austin Child Guidance Center. And there was um, that team, what they did was worked with um, people that had severe trauma. And my caseload at that time was all kids that had witnessed murder-suicide of their parents, which mm -hmm. is probably the worst trauma that anybody could imagine. And, um, um, you know, because it's people that love them, but at the same time did one of the most horrible things you could imagine. And there were folks that had EMDR as their, I saw the kids, um, they worked with other um, adult traumas and they were able to have successful outcomes using EMDR. Um, with my work, uh, I wasn't using EMDR, but the, at points, if I couldn't stop the um, re-experiencing, so one of the components of PTSD is that they um, people will have these episodes where they'll re-experience their trauma if it's a single incident trauma, and it basically comes down like a screen, and they can't, what, what the kids that I was working with told me is you can't, you can't move it, you can't look around it, you can't stop it, you just gotta wait for it to go from the beginning to the end, and they re-experience it pretty significantly. Some folks would recommend EMDR in that so that you can break that pattern and reduce the frequency of that um, re-experiencing episode or figure out how to get control so that you can flip the screen around or make the, you know, make it pop back up so that you can see the world around you. But um, um, that is a me method. I just am not um, experienced in it, but I know that it does work. At least with adults. I don't know about kids. Right. I got you. I got you. Uh, so let's see. Lavanda says, absolutely, creating a safe space is key. That was a part of what you talked about before. She also agrees that uh, these 13 and 14 year olds are terrorists. Uh, it's just absolutely crazy. Absolutely <laughs> crazy. Uh, then Chris says, uh, you can set a question for later. Sorry, Kath, it's not my intention to blind sign you. Respect you too much to do how to do that. Oh, okay. Nice. All right. I, I don't know about that. <laughs> um so so let's let's talk about the uh how can one you're we're 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 adults we're raising uh daughters nieces nephews we're raising these terrorists uh from age 10 to 13 or 14 or 17 or whenever whenever it ends uh <laughs> uh so how do we recognize if they are dealing with low self-esteem uh, or or str struggling with some type of uh mental problem issue or whatever how do we recognize that yeah yeah so i mean you'll know you you know you <laughs> right um you'll you'll see high levels of irritability um typically depression you know as adults we typically see depression as sadness and um suicidal thoughts and you know very intense um low emotions but in youth um uh, irritability can be a hallmark as well and so this like very low tolerance for frustration giving up really easily sense of helplessness those are are ways that depression can um, show up in youth and um you know that when you're middle schooler you often negative about things high schoolers too you know just have a negative perspective or only see um the the worst outcome if you if you notice a pattern where um they're like every day they come in they they you know 
when we're back in our school settings, um, and they describe the day and it's only the bad. And you ask, well, what was the highlight of your day? What was good about your day? If they can't find that and it's continuing over days and weeks at a time, then it's likely that they are experiencing symptoms of depression and or it could be a depressive episode. But it's, um, you know, we have a like a list of criteria and you have to have a certain number of them to really meet criteria. But it's it's important to be able to find the good in just about every situation. If it's difficult to find, it's because that's where your mind's eye is all the time. And it, and you have to kind of work your way out of it. Um, it can be the same about our own identities. If we can't see anything positive, you know, body image is a major issue for, especially for black girls, because you know, what do we see when it's models? What do we see on television? Um, now we're doing better. Like you walk into Target stores, I don't know if you've ever noticed the ads are changing, skin colors is changing, imperfections in, um, you know, face and skin and, you know, and all that is now becoming more prominent, um, which is, I think, great for our Gen Z because they need to be able to see that you don't have to be this bony stick figure to be considered beautiful and you don't have to have light skin to be perceived as beautiful. So, yeah, I have been noticing that. I saw one, it was a, it was a, I don't even know what, quite honestly, it was, I couldn't tell if it was black or white, but it had all freckles all over his face and stuff. So it was obviously some, mixture of <laughs> i don't i don't i don't even know but yeah. I, but i but i appreciated seeing it because there's obviously there's a kid out there and there are kids out there who look like that and i think it's very important to for us to see representation okay. is there is there a difference between um depression and low self-esteem is there is, is that the same thing or oh no 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 so yeah so i'm sorry if, if i kind of no 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 i just want to be i just want to clarify that i mean it's, yeah. it's all good it's all good <laughs> no all low good. low self-esteem is like one of the symptoms in depression okay. depression and so by low self-esteem by itself like just not feeling good about yourself is not a clinical disorder by any stretch of the imagination it's actually normal to for us to have phases where we just don't feel good about ourselves it is you don't want to always be perceiving that you don't have value and that nobody would notice whether if you're not at school or not, you know, don't go to work, that nobody would notice that that actually is is a, a not positive place to be. And so it's really the the cluster of a bunch of things that make it clinical, but feeling bad about yourself means that it's it's going to be hard to set long-term goals. It's hard to get through day-to-day -day activities because you're. It's, it's almost like like dragging something uphill. Like you, you know, you're doing one of those intense workouts or something, and you've got something really heavy on your back. Like the firefighters that do these tower, you know, where they're carrying a whole bunch of weight. It's it's you have to work so much harder to achieve just plain old day-to-day -day successes like going to school eating the meals that you're supposed to, getting exercise in, like just those things are, it's like three times the amount of work if you just don't feel like you're worth it. So part of making sure that um, they can develop in a healthy way, we, there's certain things we need to feed in them. So like everybody needs a, a basic sense of safety. 
Like you just have to feel like there's some place that you can go where you will not be harmed, you won't be judged, you won't be um, physically harmed, you know, in that way. You gotta have that. You gotta have a sense of competence that you kind of know what to do when you're exposed to a situation that might be complex, that you've, you have enough familiarity with, um, you know, and judgment, that you have good judgment. You also have to have a sense of purpose. You know, that's part of having good self-esteem is knowing what you're here for. What do you, what do you have to contribute? What's unique or special about you that, um, that it helps the world, you know, or what are you learning about yourself that you might be able to contribute? So remember when we started talking in the um, beginning and I said, yeah, when I was in high school, I just, I felt like I wanted to be there for other people and listen to them. What I didn't share about that story was that um, I had a an adult come to me and say, um, are you Janine? And I was like, yeah. And she said, well, um, you know who I am? I'm like, no. And she explained who she was. And then she said, I know you because I have, my job here is to talk to kids when they're struggling with something. And I hear your name a lot because everybody says they talk to you. And I went, oh, because I thought I was in trouble. But then when she said it and she said, so it's a heavy burden to carry everybody else's problems. And so I just wanted to make myself available to you so that you can have somebody to go to because you're already there for everybody else. I don't know that woman's name. I don't know if she was a school psychologist, but I know that after <laughs> that, I said, that's what I want to do. I want to be that. And so okay. that ninth grade, you know, for somebody that took one adult in my life to show me what it was like you know, to, to do what I thought I was passionate about. And I believed that I could. Awesome. Awesome. That's a good story. That's a good story. Sometimes we don't know the, the impact that we make, uh, you know, somebody makes upon you, you know, unless yeah. they say something. Um, a couple more questions. I know people are wanting to watch Monday Night Football, and I've been scolded about that. So, uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> um, uh, is there an increase in, in low self-esteem and or depression now with people with COVID and all that kind of stuff being locked down amongst obviously teenage teenagers? Is there an increase? Yes. Okay. So I, I'm not sure about the self-esteem because I haven't been able to see any studies about that. But what I am seeing is the prevalence of depression is incredibly, it's, it's magnified. Um, the suicide rates are increasing. There's tons of stuff that are going badly um, and it's all tied to our isolation that we are we are a social people our intention is to be connected with others and connecting through screens is not working for everybody and that you know that physical connection like I'm I'm making up little things when I when I see people I'm like because I'm a hugger and so I'm like going like this when I see them because <laughs> I can't hug them but I'm going like this and uh, you know it's 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 hard and right now just for anybody who's thinking about this and if you're if you're feeling even more um sad and and like it's hard to kind of get yourself going the reason for that is because what we know about um uh big crises like this, typically a crisis will hit. And then around the six month mark is when things start to get back to normal. But even before that, sometimes it's like people can start to let it move beyond it. But this 
COVID crisis is chronic. It hasn't gone away and we're hearing everything about in the winter that it's actually gonna be potentially worse, that we may have another wave because of flu season and we're all gonna be pushed indoors because the winter will be here. So the realization that we're not going back to normal has created a state of disillusionment for most people. And that disillusionment is hard to break through. It's hard to see the other side. It's hard to feel hopeful and positive. And so everything that validates that we're continuing in this, it, it makes depression even more prevalent. So um, uh, some of the apps that people use to try and, you know, like, like calm app and do things to kind of relieve anxiety, it, I'm pushing. Every time I see a good app, I'm like, ooh, so try that one, you know, to kind of get you to see the silver linings and to get yourself moving like physically moving is actually really, really important when um, you're experiencing depression because the, you know, it just, it, the endorphins can kind of, you know, kick in and help the um, serotonin levels that are, that are just taking over. So. Yeah. 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 That's, some, that's important. I, I listen, I got to have you back. I don't want to keep you. Um, I don't know if you're a football fan or not, but uh, I really, really appreciate you coming on the show, I really had a great conversation and, and I'd like to talk about SROs and their impact upon, um, you know, schools and what people think about them. And Zakia made a good point about metal detectors and what's going on psychologically yeah. when, when people see cops and all that in the schools and all that. So I really want to have you back. If you could just push your website, I don't know if you have any books or new papers or studies or anything or what you have going on. I got a little, little everything. So okay. uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, where do I go to put, put, uh, uh, you can probably type it in the chat. In the pri I don't know if you can type, but you can put it in a private chat, okay. and then I will copy and paste and put it in the comments here. Okay. So, so while you're doing that, um, I just want to encourage everyone. Listen, guys, um, just remember I am retired, so please hit me up. Uh, uh, Venmo, PayPal, Cash App, Patreon page, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. You can support the podcast, you know, a dollar an episode or whatever you can do, $5 a month. I really, really would appreciate it. That way I don't have to live in a poor house. Um uh, or CPTL Hunter, CPTL Hunter, PayPal, Cash App, and Venmo. Thank you so much for, for all of that. And here is your uh, Twitter and your website. I'll copy this, put it into the comments. So anyone who wants to get in contact with uh, Dr. Janine can go to our website. Dr. Janine, I'm saying this for the audio here. Dr. Janine Jones, D-R-G-J-A. N I N E Jones.com or Twitter at uh, Dr. Uh, Janine Jones yep. at Twitter. So, uh, so I didn't go through Facebook, but regardless, it'll be on the screen here. Okay. Um, so I don't know if it's on here. Yeah. So I'll put right. it on the screen. Yeah. Um, so thank you so much. I know you're, you're a really, really busy lady. Like I said, I'd like to have you back. I really, really appreciate everyone coming on the show. There's so much more I wanted to ask you about, um, but we'll save it for another time, another episode. Uh, Rome wasn't built in a day and I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, do you have any parting words, uh, for, for us? No, thanks for having me. I appreciate the conversation and, and Absolutely. make new friends. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much, Chris and Zakia and Lavanda and Lauren and Marlene and everyone else who joined in who I didn't see or couldn't or couldn't see or whatever. Kalisha, Miss Fitzpatrick, Ed, everyone else. Thank you so much. I will talk to you guys. Much love and peace. Take care.